Hi, I'd like to uh, ask you to do something for me, if you wouldn't mind. If you like this episode, I'd like you to uh, not only subscribe uh, on your favorite site, but I'd also like you to uh, give a rating. Uh, ideally, a, a five-star rating would be you know, greatly appreciated. But I think more importantly also would be just uh, some uh, comments. Uh, that helps with the algorithm and it helps build the, uh, the audience with this. And more than anything else, if you could um, invite somebody else to listen, just share this episode with a friend, with a colleague, and uh, I'd like to see how we can grow the soul of business. I think it makes a difference. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. And folks, today we've got um, a conversation that I want to uh, really you know, kind of dig into, and it revolves a couple, around a couple of points. Um, one has to do with, you know, how do we motivate what I'm going to call euphemistically, and this is a broad generality, but hourly workers, you know, folks that are you know, not on salary, they're not in the management group, they're uh, um, typically not in the management group, um, but the shift workers, you know, folks that are out there doing what needs to be done in order to keep everything afloat, quite frankly. Um, so the the whole notion of, you know, the soul of business comes into play with this because oftentimes these are the folks that are most egregiously separated from what Wayne, I, I don't know if you can hear me, but you're frozen up and uh, I'm not typically hearing Typically the management, the founders, the leaders in organizations have got some sense of uh, what that soul, that unique identifier is. It kind of separates them uh, from others in the same market space. Um, my guest today, uh, Scott Greenberg, has got a new book coming out. It's called Stop the Shift Show. Turn your hourly employees into top performing teams. And He's also got a background, a real successful background in franchising um, and has won numerous awards. Whoops. Okay, let's see here. I just dropped something, so I'm going to... Uh, again, blame. I'm not. I don't know if you're still there. If you're hearing me or not hearing me, um, I'm hanging in there. Uh, and uh, if you need to send me an email or call me so we can start again, or if I should do something differently, uh, please do. My cell is eight one eight two six nine eight three six four. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna have to start over. My internet just just collapsed on me. Okay, as long as it's not happening on my end, that's always my worry. No, no, no you were fine. You were fine. So um, we're just gonna have to pick it up here, uh, yeah, and start a little bit uh, back at the beginning, so to speak. I, I've got three internet providers up here on the island, and uh, we've been promised broadband for the last twelve years. It hasn't come in yet, so. <laughs> We'll see where okay. we end up. Okay, so three count one more time here. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Um, 
Today's episode, folks, uh, you know, the soul of business, uh, most business leaders, most business managers, uh, particularly if they're in senior levels of leadership in an organization, have got some sense of what that unique thing is that makes their organization different than anybody else in their in their space. What doesn't usually translate, though, is what the soul of the business is uh, down into the ranks in the organization. And my guest today, uh, Scott Greenberg, has got a new book coming out called The um, Stop the Shift Show, Turn Your Hourly Employees into Top-Performing Teams. And I wanted to have uh, Scott on the, on the show uh, basically because he's got a lot of experience in you know, what I'm going to you know, euphemistically call and generically call motivating uh, or providing motivational strategies for folks that are actually leading teams that are comprised primarily of uh, hourly workers, that sort of they shift workers, that sort of thing. He's also got a very extensive background for those of you that have an entrepreneurial bent uh, in, uh, in franchising. He's won numerous awards uh, as a franchisee. Uh, so I think we're going to be able to have a very uh, robust conversation about a number of different areas here. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Blaine. Been looking forward to it. Great. Did did I misspeak on? I'm going to pull my Rachel Mad, uh, Maddow's uh, question out of the out of the mix here. Did I misspeak on anything in terms of my very perfunctory uh, introduction to you? Uh, well, there's one word you had missing from the book title, and I feel like we got to get the book title right. So Absolutely. the book is called it's called Stop the Shift Show: Turn Your Struggling Hourly Workers into a Top Performing Team. Um, oh, so that word struggling was the only thing that was missing. Otherwise, everything was great. Good, good. Well, yeah, I'm going to blame your PR group for that one. <laughs> it didn't come through. <laughs> it's all good. Um, what? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to just start with a question I start with all the time on the show is when you hear the term the soul of business, what crops up in your mind? What does what does that evoke? You know, so I, most of what I do for a living is I give presentations. I'm up on stage talking to business leaders, franchisees, managers, um, and I'll throw out discussion questions. And one of them is I'll ask, what business are you really in? And invariably, someone raises their head and says, well, we're in the people business. And they feel proud of that answer. And I always think, what does that even mean? And I think it's less that we're, in, you know, to be in the people business, but more in the humanity business. And really understanding what that means. What it means is that we're all delivering products and services, but it's the businesses that deliver them in a way that feel the best. These are the businesses that win. So I believe that everyone your business touches is a customer, whether it is the paying consumer, whether it's your employees, whether it's vendors, that all of us exist to deliver products and services in a way that elevate people's emotions. And so obviously we need to bring other, you know, the value, right? We need to solve their problems. They need solutions. But there's a lot of companies that solve problems, provide solutions. Those who make people feel the best as they do it are the ones that win. So for me, the soul of business is how does your business make people feel? And for this new book, the focus is on your employees and specifically your hourly workers. How are you making them feel and how are they making you and your customers feel and how are they making each other feel? That's the soul of business to me. You know, I, I love that answer uh, because, yeah, I've been you know working as a management consultant, a leadership development consultant for over 40 years. And 
early on in my career, uh, just the the thought of having an emotional conversation, uh, it was almost anathema to uh, you know, the leaders that I was working with. And these were, I mean, you know, we're talking about Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies. It's kind of like emotions don't have a place here. You know, we've got, you know, let's get pragmatic. Let's get focused. Let's, you know. And then I, I'm going to just kind of riff a bit here. You know, when I started backing up and about uh, oh, 20 years ago, uh, when I started playing with some different ideas and I ended up writing the book, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. One of the things that struck me was uh, that we got it, you know, completely wrong about what the purpose of business is. And, and I grew up when Milton Friedman was around and I mean, you know, the purpose of business is to make a profit and, uh, to me, the purpose of business, and regular listeners of the show have heard me say this, the purpose of business is to, <laughs> I love it. The purpose of business is to enhance the possibility of thriving for everything on this planet. And if, if thriving is your, is your metric, if your service or product makes people feel as if they can thrive, you've got a pretty good you know, shot at being successful because people are going to be coming because they like the experience, the feeling of, I get to thrive here. I mean, I remember when uh, I got my first iPhone and I had the, you know, I was doing a lot of work with Nokia at the time. So I showed up uh, uh, at home after a long business trip and uh, somebody had shipped me an Apple iPhone, the first iteration of the Apple iPhone. It was sitting on my doorstep. Then I was going, hmm. I took the box in, and the box was the packaging was. I mean, I, I've still got the box. I've still got that box. the The packaging was extraordinary. It's going, and I've still, I've got chills as I'm talking about it here. What's in this box? The promise that the packaging held for what the you know, <laughs> end product was going to be, and I've never looked back. Yeah. Uh, that was such a delight. I felt good about me for having this in my hand. So somebody who was an hourly worker put that package together. Now, I know that Johnny Ive had a whole lot of say-so in the design of the packaging and everything else that went into it. But that, that sort of attention to detail, when, when we can get that right at the hourly, at the line level in an organization, all bets are off. And you talk in your book about the human factor, the human factor. Uh, piece of uh, business. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. You know, it's interesting because, you know, there are lots of companies out there, medium, large companies that have a C-suite that have management, but then also have a, a large team of frontline workers, you know, who are paid hourly. And a lot of those organizations get it right when it comes to the C-suite and when it comes to management. But when it comes to their hourly workers, it remains a pain point that they're short staffed, that there's a lot of turnover, that there is underperformance. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, which I discuss, I think, pretty thoroughly in the book. But one of the biggest reasons is that hourly workers are completely different from those on salary at so many yeah. different levels. And when you look at, again, I know you've been in management consulting for 40 years. I bet you have just tons of books on your bookshelves for management. And I bet not one of them focuses on hourly workers because that book hasn't existed. That most people who talk about leadership, who talk about management, are talking it in broad terms, right? As mm -hmm. if you're going to manage an engineer the same way you're going to manage a cashier. They're completely different in terms of levels of skill set, in terms of demographics, in terms of their emotional needs. 
in terms of how their work makes them feel. And so the idea of it taking one leadership style or just these large sort of abstract grand concepts to think it's going to apply on the factory floor as much as it is, you know, in the C-suite is absurd. And so what I'm trying to do is to kind of help people understand the differences uh, between hourly workers and those on salary and how we can manage them to bring out their best. And I know it's a pain point. I know most people struggle. They don't believe in kids these days or the work <laughs> ethic, that kind of thing. But I've personally seen a difference in my own businesses, and I have worked with and interviewed many others who've proven that great things can be done at the hourly level, provided people are willing to do that. What are some of the key differences you see uh, that separates a salaried worker from an hourly worker? You know, you, you mentioned that there are they are different. Uh, they, you know, there's there's different sensibilities. What? Yeah. Sure. What are you noticing? Well, people who earn salary, they have reliable income and reliable hours, right? And the idea of getting a salary, it feels good to know that you're not punching in and punching out. That people are recognizing the contributions you make that are often at a, an abstract or at a creative level, right? You can show mm -hmm. up a few minutes late, a few minutes early. You can leave to go run an errand to take your daughter to um, a, you know, a, a medical appointment, that kind of thing. Um, but there's also stability because they kind of know every day what the hours are going to be. They can life plan around that. They have reliable income, which makes it not only easier to life plan, but it makes it easier to access credit. They tend to have uh, higher skills and therefore are compensated accordingly. Um, often, if you look at the demographics, they tend to be uh, have you know more education, uh, often more job experience. And so they relate things to like, you know, abstract concepts like a mission statement and value statement, sense of purpose, that sort of thing. Yeah. When you look at hourly workers, um, they're, they don't know necessarily how much money they're going to make. When times get tough, their hours are going to be cut. Even when times are good, their hours might be changed. They also are much more likely to be going to second jobs, to be going to classes, to have someone else in the household who has a changing job. And so they are constantly on a weekly basis having to juggle chains are life. They don't necessarily know what their income is going to be or their hours. So life planning is a lot more difficult. They don't feel the same loyalty from their employers. They're not necessarily on the same kind of growth path where there's a clear kind of corporate ladder. And so they might feel stuck. And because they probably feel less loyalty because the relationships are often more transactional with the company than they are relational, they're not going to be as loyal to that company. And so they're much more likely to leave. Um, hourly workers also tend to be uh, younger, which means their brains aren't quite developed. Uh, it's so, you know, you could take, you know, the average, you know, worker in, you know, say a fast food restaurant or, or even retail, which is the largest um, employer of hourly workers. Well, they're younger. Without that brain development, what we might see as common sense is them just mentally not being there yet. They're going to be a great loaf of bread, but the dough is still raw. They're still baking. And so... <laughs> Right. So we just have to completely change our expectations, the way we lead them, appreciate where their brains are at, and that we need to adapt accordingly. Just as we change um, our approach based on the will of the marketplace, we need to change our approach to management, looking at the labor marketplace and the, specifically the people we're leading. I love that answer. And the, the discreteness with which you articulated that difference, uh, I think, is really, really useful. Um, it speaks to how do I need to position 
just just about anything if I'm a leader or a manager in an organization. You know, um, Gallup, and you're I'm sure familiar with this, Gallup does a, an annual survey on employee engagement. And for the last, you know, at least 30 years that I'm aware of, that number has not changed. It's been disengaged at about uh, 87%, 80, 89, 87, 86. I mean, it kind of fluctuates a little bit. It's all within that band. Um, that emotional engagement or that lack of emotional engagement, more precisely, I think is evidenced by what you're speaking to here. Um, and I'm going to kind of, you know, ask this question of you uh, in this regard. Um, the leadership work that is typically delivered into organizations from a developmental perspective is targeted at you know, managers and above, it's particularly directors and above. It's almost never targeted at line managers, at uh, folks that are actually interfacing and interacting directly with the workforce per se. And what I'm interested in here is, is just a, a thought from you. Um, you know, McKinsey took a, a survey not too long ago, a couple of years ago, and it was a, basically an assessment of how many, you know, self-assessment of leaders. You know, how many leaders think that they're doing a good job? 97%, 98%, something like that said, I think we're doing a pretty good job. And the survey was targeted at senior leadership in an organization, typically. And then you contrast that with uh, the Gallup information. And Gallup actually did a survey and said, how many of you folks think that your leaders are doing a pretty good job? And about 80, you know, 88, 89%, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now, said, not so good. They're <laughs> just not doing a good job at all. Now, the miss here is that organizations spend on average about $42 billion a year, billion dollars a year on leadership development. And I've just got to believe we're targeting the wrong group with leadership con you know, conversations. That middle group, that ones that are actually interfacing most directly with the line managers don't know what to do from a leadership perspective in leading this cohort. Um, because leading hourly workers is different than leading salaried workers, just in the way that you've articulated this difference. Am I missing the mark on that? Or is that a fairly accurate assessment from your opinion? Uh, that is absolutely accurate. In fact, 90% of people in leadership management positions have actually not gotten any leadership training until they're on the job for about 10 years. Right. Yeah. And you think about the person who's managing the line. How do they become a manager? Well, usually they're on the line. They demonstrated some competence and some responsibility. And so what happens? They get promoted, right, to a manager with the assumption, well, they're good in the line. Therefore, they'll be good leading the line. But leadership and management, it's a completely different skill set. How many times have we seen great athletes become not so great coaches? So <laughs> just because, you know, they know how to, to, you know, flip a burger or, you know, construct a widget doesn't mean that they can resolve conflict, that they can engage their employees, that they can make their employees feel good, that they can build teams, that they can define and preserve culture. It's a completely different thing. And so, yeah, look, I'm, I'm married. I think I'm a good husband. But whether or not I am a good husband, I'm not the person to ask. It's my wife who could probably tell you if I'm meeting her needs, if I'm a good husband. So I don't care what a manager's think of themselves. What I care about is those they're managing. Do they feel like their needs are being met? Are they inspired? Does their manager engage them? Does a manager lift them up or pull them down? And again, 
most people manage the way they were managed. And so there's yep. this tradition of bad management that just gets passed on from generation to generation. Um, and so people talk about kids these days. Well, we can talk about that. But how about managers these days? And how about managers going back for centuries? Yeah, so the right. people who most need to learn management aren't learning it. They're just put in a position because people are desperate to fill the position of management and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You, you learn, you know, management and leadership are different animals. Uh, they, I, I've got to have management skills in order to facilitate the process of, you know, going from point A to point B as, a, as, a, as an organization. But the leadership is an engagement art. How do I engage my people? You've got a tool that I want to talk about here, the 30-second leadership uh, tool. We're going to take a real quick break, but you know, folks, when you come back, I want I want you to pay attention to this because this is a tool that, um, that Scott has developed that is directed towards making that gap a little bit less broad. Okay, so we'll be right back. The nature of life is evidenced in nature. Nature grows, and all of nature honors the desire to be more, to have more and to do more. Life thrives when it's allowed to grow. And ideally, thriving is what we also, all of us, want to be able to do. Unfortunately, at some stage in life, most people find themselves settling into what I can only call a rut. And a rut is nothing more than a coffin with the ends kicked out. You want to quickly get out of any rut that you find yourself in. When you stop growing, that's when the coffin starts to appear. You know, the simple truth is this, and this is true for everything in nature. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Every one of us dies. So the question we need to come to grips with is not are we going to die. The question nature asks us to answer is are we truly living? That's what motivation is about. It's the desire to move. It's the desire to grow and to excel. Have I lived? How have I lived? I'd love for you to take advantage of my Leadership Mindset Masterclass. It's all about providing you with the tools to ensure thriving for yourself and for those around you. Register today to receive the free introduction video and find out more about this acclaimed program. You'll also receive a copy of my international number one bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. I'm Blaine Bartlett, and I look forward to helping you thrive. Hey, welcome back, folks. Um, just before we took that break, um, Scott and I were you know, kind of riffing a little bit about some of the differences between leadership and management. And I mentioned just at the break point, about a management tool that he's got that he you know, basically the you know, the title of it is a 30 second leadership tool. So um, I'm very intrigued by it because I like application. <laughs> I like things that will, yeah, yeah, actually create movement here. So what is this tool? How can people find out more about it? And what, what you know, was kind of the catalyst for you developing it? Uh, sure. Well, I have a, a good friend who is a founder of you know various restaurants, and he and I hike, and we spent the better part of our lives both studying leadership management. And so we have complained about employees, but talked about how to improve. And so together, kind of kicking it back and forth, 
Um, we developed what would be the beginning of 30 second leadership. And I've now been sort of teaching it and talking about it for years. And just to sort of set a tone, Blaine, imagine going to a hospital emergency room and it's crowded. And so you've got one person complaining of chest pain. There's a teenager with an ice pack on her knee, one person who can't stop coughing. But instead of pulling people into examination rooms to really like diagnose them, the doctor just sees everyone's symptoms, prescribes the same thing to them, gives them all penicillin and sends them home. There's a name for that kind of medicine, malpractice. Yes. That doctor is not going to help any of the patients unless the doctor takes time to ask questions and properly diagnose. And only once they've correctly diagnosed them can they then determine what is the best treatment. My contention is that most managers are guilty of managerial malpractice. They see the underperformance. They see the things that they don't like or don't want or things that they do but they prescribe the same management and the same leadership style to everyone. Again, without really asking questions to figure out what's actually going on. What is the actual need for that person? And then adapting the way they treat them, the way they manage them to make sure that they are able to boost their skill set and their mindset. So what we have done is we've created a model where very quickly, because managers are busy, you can diagnose what an employee needs for a given task by looking at their skill set, their hard skills, and their mindset, their soft skills separately. And then by quickly evaluating each one, you can then determine what is the best corresponding coaching to boost both their skill set, mindset, and preserve them and promote top performance. So we experimented in my businesses and my colleagues' businesses, and I've since been teaching this to all kinds of organizations, and the results have been phenomenal. And the beauty of it is in its simplicity. You know, the last thing the world needs is another leadership or management model. And we wanted to create something simple that like a 19-year-old assistant manager at a frozen yogurt shop, that she can quickly learn it, understand it, and use it. And so we've created it at that level. Uh, so it's very simple. Um, you can do it within 30 seconds, but it's really powerful and um, really is helping people manage employees, especially our employees, so much more effectively. Can, I'm intrigued. I'm very, very much intrigued here. Can you give me a case study example? Uh, of, of the uh, tool and practice? Uh, well, I guess I can look at you know my own business. So I, for more than 10 years, was a multi-unit franchisee with edible arrangements. And so I had one employee who worked customer service and uh, trained her on how to upsell, right? We wanted to build tickets. We don't want to exploit our customers, but we certainly wanted to give them as many options as possible to create a great gift that would really enhance what they're buying. And obviously for us, we would get more revenue in exchange for that. So we gave her the training and her numbers weren't that great. And so we kind of kept training her thinking, well, she, she must not know what's going on, right? And numbers are low, so I, we kept training her. And then we thought that she has an attitude problem. And so we started like kind of, you know, getting down her saying, hey, you're not as good as other people. You need to, you know, to step it up. So one day after we developed this model, I applied it to her. And again, you, the whole idea is you manage hard skills and soft skills, mm -hmm. um, skill set and mindset separately. And what we determined was, was the issue her hard skills? Was it what she knew? So we asked her about the upselling. She knew our techniques. She knew the product line. The issue was not what she knew. So even though we continue to train her, when you train someone, what you're doing is you're working on their hard skills. She did, that's not what the problem was. The problem was with her soft skills. It was with her mindset. And the way we evaluate mindset is two things. Their level of uh, enthusiasm, 
and their level of confidence. So how excited are they to do it? And do they believe in themselves? What we, we came to find out by asking her questions was she was afraid that she would offend customers by making uh-huh. these suggestions that would come across as too salesy. So the issue wasn't what she knew, it was how she felt. And so that's where we focused our conversations instead of retraining her. Once we did that and boosted her confidence and made things okay, immediately there's a jump in her ticket average. So, the, you know, I, I mean, in the book, I go into great detail about how to properly diagnose and all the techniques for doing it. But honestly, if all the readers walk away with is in their minds, they always distinguish between what a person knows and how a person feels and determine which of the two is the problem or if it's a combination. If all people do is make that distinction, they're going to manage people more effectively than 90% of folks out there. I love that. I Thank you for that, Scott. And I, yeah, I know I put you a bit on the spot there, just kind of like, okay, yeah, okay we're, I know I've got one here. Yeah, <laughs> That was a great example. And it, it really was consistent with the, the doc walking into the ER and looking around and going, yeah, okay, skill training for everybody, go. And that wasn't it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, if you misdiagnose, you're going to mistreat. And I yes. think that's a lot of managers do that. They think that, you know, I remember a, another example I gave uh, when I was mistreated. I had a job working as a production assistant on a movie set. And remember, um, you know, I was supposed to be just like a one day thing. And that first day went well. They invited me back the next day. And I show up and, they, and the, my, uh, the second assistant director says, why are you so late? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the call sheet said you're supposed to be here. I didn't even know what a call sheet was. He thought an attitude problem, but no one trained me on the call sheet. And then all day long, they kept telling me to do things I didn't know how to do. They even said, hey, go find an extension cord. So I look around, and I see a truck that had a cord. So I walk inside and the head grip starts yelling at me. What are you doing in our truck? And I said, well, Steve told me to get an extension cord. He says, that's the grip truck. If you're not on our crew, stay out of our truck. I didn't know what the rules were. I didn't need to be disciplined about showing up on time or disciplined about going into a truck I'm not supposed to. I needed training. The issue mm-hmm. was what I knew, not how I felt. I didn't need an attitude adjustment. But again, for me, I think the enemy of good leadership is busyness. And people are too yeah. busy to actually train people to give them the tools that they need. So and it, what ends up happening is not only do you not improve their skill set, you end up ruining their mindset. And that's yeah. what drives them out the door. There you go. And therein lies the lack of emotional engagement that you know, Gallup looks at, the quiet quitting that we hear so much about today. Um, you know, you've got um, you know, this new book coming out, Stop the Shift Show. It, it drops and I'm going to, you know, in February of 2024. So this will be green. Yeah. People listening to this after 24, uh, will be able to pick it up anyway, but, um, the idea of, um, the human factor piece, you've been addressing that a little bit here, but I want you to, if you could, um, because I do a lot of work and I've done a lot of work with a company called IDEO, which is a design firm. And you know, IDEO, you know, basically, you know, cut their chops on the whole notion of human factor, watching how people actually use things and, and actually, you know, involve themselves in things, whether it's a job or whether it's a tool. What was the catalyst for you in in beginning to pay attention to this human factor, this you know, piece of the work process? I've always been intrigued by people that actually can lift the cover on something and go, there, that's something that nobody else is paying attention to, and it's the secret sauce. What was what was the the you know that kind of that 
catalyst for you, that demarcation point that set you on sure. your journey? So we sort of have to reverse engineer my career. So I work today as a speaker and writer, helping business leaders grow their business and you know build their teams. So, um, and so I spent, while doing this, I also spent 10 years as a multi-unit franchisee with edible arrangements. So I was actually employing these concepts in my own retail businesses with my own money, with my own employees um, doing these things. But before that, I was a motivational speaker, straight out motivational speaker with an emphasis on um, peak performance and overcoming adversity. What led to that was I was a graduate film student at New York University in my early 20s, and I was diagnosed with cancer. I had to drop out of school and spend a year in treatment. Well, during um, screenwriting class in film school, they would always tell us, number one, write what you know, but equally important, pay attention to the human condition. Because if you can capture and portray people as they really are, that's going to engage the audience more. So that really stuck in my mind when I'm going through chemotherapy. I was in this large room with all these other people seated in their, their, you know, these big chairs with their IVs. And I just looked around and noticed the different ways they were all reacting to their circumstances. Some were really struggling and suffering through their treatments and others were laughing and, and living, including those some who were dying. But on those days, they were living. There was no connection between someone's diagnosis and their experience of treatment. And that got me curious that why is it in similar circumstances, people react different ways and have different experiences. So that question has been the fundamental question that's driven my entire career. That it's not just about the operation. It's not just about the tactics. Because you and I can engage in the same operation, employ the same tactics, but in the same circumstances, but still get very different results. Yeah. And that's because of what you and I bring to our work our level of enthusiasm, our level of commitment, our attitude, our belief system, all that human stuff that people write off as soft skills, you know, that touchy-feely stuff. But it really is the difference between those who thrive and those who don't. And again, the franchise world is a great place for me to explore this because in a franchise, you have lots of people running the same business in communities with the same or similar demographics, the same marketing, same product lines, often the same pricing, but getting very different results. And what I noticed in my franchise system and all the others who I've spoken to, and I wrote a book for that world called The Wealthy Franchisee, when you look at the top franchisees and compare them to everyone else, it's as much who they are and how they're thinking as it is what they're doing. So that's where I discovered yeah. the power of mindset and the power of that human factor. Scott, thank you for that answer. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to see you recovered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been a number of years now. Yeah, perfect. Folks have been listening to Scott Greenberg. Uh, pick up his book when it drops. Um, Stop the Shift Show. Turn your hourly employees, your struggling hourly employees into a top performing team. Um, so where can people find out more? And I'm, I'm assuming that they can pre-order uh, on your website, but also at Amazon, that sort of stuff. But how do people get a, in, in, uh, connected to you? Um, well, the best place is my website, which is scottgreenberg.com, B-E-R-G. And um, all the main social media platforms, I am there. But website's a good place to start. For Stop the Shift Show, you're right, it is available um, now for pre-order wherever books are sold. Um, certainly on Amazon, there's a whole page there where you can read more about the book. And it can be pre-ordered now. Excellent. Folks, 
Thank you for listening today. I hope uh, this has been as uh, informative for you as it was for me. I, I mean, I, I love particularly just as a recap here, the distinction between what an hourly worker is dealing with and what a salaried worker is dealing with. Uh, I mean, that is uh, just a brilliant distinction. And what we pay attention to as leaders makes a difference. How we lead uh, is an art form, and it has to be where they are, not where we are. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to just send you on your way here. Tune in next week for another episode. And between now and then, just remember, um, be a way, find a way to be a center of distribution in your world, not a center of accumulation. Um, give away stuff. You know, give away your ideas. Give away your, your IP. I, you know, come to my website. I've got a lot of stuff up there that you can uh, you know, kind of pull down and use. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.